0: The next thing I would like to talk about, and I'll try to get you out of here by noon. I I may not make this as long. The title of this little message, we had Sing the New Song. It was a biblical uh, discussion as to what the new song means to the Christian, that it's a resource, not just an inspirational, optional activity. And then the last message, of course, is to give us some direction as to what kind of music endures, what kind of music we should should make sure that we never lose. Uh, That was what that was about. And this is entitled, Lead the New Song. How do we keep good music, good singing alive in our communities? Or how does it happen that some communities are singing communities and other communities are not? I mean, I can name you singing communities. South Boston is one of them. And I, of course, I don't know this congregation, but your singing is very good here. Uh, and I don't, and I, I don't have your history. But I, I think if I would go back, I would find something similar to what you would find at South Boston. I don't know what preceded the 1940s at South Boston. Perhaps there was even a precedent before that. But at Boston, South Boston, in the 1940s and 1950s, there was a man there by the name of Henry Good the Third had a family of nine children, and the children remember, some. Of, most of them are still living, I think, or some of them are, they remember that he, on a regular basis, gathered them around his rocking chair, and he had charts, music charts made up, and he'd sit in his rocking chair with a yardstick and drill them on the rudiments of singing. And they sang as a family. He told one of his daughters every time a new hymnal came out to order it. He he, he wanted to have all the new hymnals that came out, uh, Mennonite hymnals, I'm sure, and maybe other hymnals as well. But he wanted he wanted a collection of hymnals uh, because that, that was, I guess, sort of his hobby, collecting hymnals. He conducted music schools on a regular basis. He was constantly getting together little groups to stand up and sing, special numbers, and he was constantly um, insisting on... Uh, wholehearted congregational participation. Now, what I'm saying to you is there was a leader there who wouldn't give up. He had a vision of a singing congregation, and he did by teaching the congregation, by little ensembles of groups, teaching his nine children. He he infused into that community a a sense of the importance and the beauty and the satisfaction of singing. And here we are, what, 75 years later, we have a singing congregation. If you go to Hartville, Ohio, that's as a boy growing up, that was sort of the music capital of the United States. I mean, that's they were the first conservative group uh, to produce recordings, and, and they had a choir when no, none of our conservative churches did. And if you went there, they had excellent congregational singing. Well, that goes back to John Overholt. And that goes back to his father. His father was Mennonite, converted to Amish. I'm sorry, it was his grandfather. But his father... Uh, had had enough contact with the Mennonites that he could read music, which was sort of unusual for an Amish boy to read music. And he read music well, and again, he had all kinds of hymnals. He taught his children to sing. He taught them to love music. And John Overholt, Joe Overholt, took a group of raw Amish recruits and trained them to be good singers and and, and developed a choir. And so there you have it. And, and what I'm saying is... <laughs> Nothing happens, uh, hear me please, nothing happens automatically except sin. That'll happen automatically. Anything other than that, that is good and noble and right, if you go back, you're going to find somebody who irresistibly and persistently and steadfastly and in a concentrated way stood for that truth, articulated it, insisted upon it, exemplified it, and just kept at it till the day he died. That's what you'll find if you find anything good. And so when I say lead the new song, I'm not talking about song leaders. I'm talking about every one of us taking some responsibility to lead the new song, to be a leader in singing. Well, you say, I'm a woman. The church isn't going to take very well to me getting up music classes and doing all the stuff you said. Well, let me take you to another person. This was a woman. It was my grandmother. Her name was Susie Martin. She was married to a man who could not carry a tune. He literally had no interest in singing. When the family sang, he usually wasn't involved. He was sitting over listening to his radio. He was not a very spiritual man. He was sort of a a non-involved father in many ways. He had some good qualities too, and he he led his family in some things. But when it came to music, no involvement at all, and probably if it wouldn't have been for his wife, that family would have grown up to be what is often said, that's a non-singing family but they grew up to be a singing family. Now, to my knowledge, my grandmother could not sing a part, and she wasn't really that great a note reader, but she considered this important. And my father talked about a a frequent evening activity was to gather around the kitchen table with hymn books, and she taught them what little bit of music she knew. I don't think she was a great musical person, but she taught them what little bit of music she knew, and she taught them to love singing, to value singing, and to participate in singing parts. And they grew up to be a singing family. If you go to my community, they'll say the Abe Martin family, yeah, that's a singing family. There were, there were seven boys in that family and two girls, and they were all, all the boys were singers, and even those who left the Mennonite church were leaders of music in the churches where they went. I mean, it was just a singing family. When I grew up, of course, that, my father was a part of that family, but the problem was he was sick, he had chronic asthma, and almost couldn't sing without having a coughing fit. Well, how did our singing family become a singing family? And our family in the community is known as a singing family. It's because I had a mother. Now, my mother couldn't read any music and she couldn't sing any part, but she loved to sing and she sang a good clear soprano and she sang all the time. When my mother wasn't singing, she was sick. And we children grew up with a tremendous ear training. Let me just throw this in mothers, you're the most crucial part of the music training of your children because. When the children come to church, they hear four parts. They don't hear the pure notes. They hear four parts, and it's confusing If they, some children are strong enough in their gifting of music that that won't matter. They' learn to sing anyway. But the ones who are marginal, the ones who are average, probably are going to have a hard time learning to sing, unless they hear the pure melody song. When you put on the recordings at home, again, it's four parts, it's musical instruments with different parts. And they don't hear those pure melodies. I didn't realize till I was growing that I had a tremendous privilege of having fabulous ear training hour after hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year. And all the members of my family had an accurate ear for music by the time they were in their teens. Now let me tell you something else. Everybody knows there's a window of opportunity for a child to learn anything. Whether it's a foreign language, you name it. From the age of 2 to 11, they will just automatically learn it. Because a child's mind will take, it just absorbs everything that comes down the road without any discrimination. At the age of 12, that window of opportunity closes. And we are made that we can't go on doing that because there's so much in the world to learn. We have to become selective. So the mind closes down to the few select things that you focus on consciously. If you have not learned a foreign language until then, you'll have a very difficult time learning it. You can learn it, but you'll have to focus on it. And uh, it it won't be the automatic impression that it was before. Music has the same window of opportunity from ages 2 to 11. (laughs) Almost every child, unless he's extremely musically handicapped. And it's hard for me to understand why God would command us to sing and then make people who can't sing. But there are people who are deaf and they can't learn to sing. I have to accept that. But it's hard for me to accept that any normal person cannot learn to sing if he's had the proper training from a little up, especially between the ages of 2 and 11. So my plea today is for you mothers to sing in the home. It's the best ear training that you can give to your children. Joseph Funk. I'm just talking about leaders, music leaders, down through our history. Joseph Funk, in 1847, established the first Mennonite printing press in America. And what did he print? Music. (laughs) Music. And he kept developing the shape note system. The uh, seven shape system we have today was basically finalized by Joseph Funk. And then he began to teach four-part singing in, the, in Virginia and then in other parts of the country. And four-part singing became the heritage of most Anabaptist churches, or at least the ones we know. Ezekiel twenty-two thirty 30 says, I sought for a man among them who should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. Notice he didn't say, I sought for men. He said, I sought for a man. God needs only one man. Now, it's good if they're two or three or four or five, the more the better, but God really only needs one man to be a leader in anything. Samuel took the confidence of Israel to a high level. He was a great leader. He, he brought the nation to a high spiritual level. And then we have a man after him called Saul and he goes... David comes along, he lifts it to a high level again, Solomon comes along and it goes That's the tragedy of it. We have so few people that have determined in their hearts to be leaders, good leaders. John Amos Comenius was the last old Moravian bishop. You all heard of John Huss who was burned at the stake. His followers were known as Hussites in Czechoslovakia and Bohemia. And that church has a glorious history, but Finally, the Roman Catholic Church took up that area uh, took, uh, took over that area and so persecuted and suppressed that finally, uh, especially the clergy, that he was forced to leave the country. But John Amos Comenius, in leaving Czechoslovakia, stood on top of the mountain and looked out over his the land that he was leaving, and he said, "My work is a hidden seed; it was good seed, and it will yet bear forth bear fruit. Hundred years later, we have the Moravian movement that grew out of that, that you've heard about. One man, in fact, he's a well-known man. When I was at Shippensburg University, he is known as the father of modern education. They didn't tell us this, what I just told you, that he was a bishop, he was a godly man. They didn't tell us that the reason he did what he did was because he had a vision to educate the whole world with the gospel. What he did was he said children should have materials on their level. Up to that point, children memorized adult catechisms, and they didn't have books on children's level. They didn't have pictures in the books. He said we need books on the level of the children. We need books with pictures. But it was because he wanted to teach all of them the gospel. He's known as the father of modern education. He was a very pivotal person in history. Or you could take John Wesley, who's almost single-handedly saved England from a bloody revolution like France had and like the United States had. And historians agree on that. One man. Or Conrad Grebel, who had the audacity to establish a free church, freedom of conscience, separation of church and state. Those were revolutionary ideas. Our, Our forefathers were martyred not so much for their religious beliefs, as they were for people who were scared. What would happen if everybody was free? Well, all society would go into chaos. So they were scared to death of these revolutionary people who were talking about freedom. But one man changed the whole profile of Western civilization with that radical idea. His name was Conrad Grebel, and of course he had associates. Longfellow said one time, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Great leaders don't just happen. They have purpose. And there are some qualities that these people have that make them what they are. And those are the qualities I want to talk about for 15 minutes. And then I'll sit down even if I'm not done. I promise you that. The first one is excellence. I told you last night that the New Testament song is the counterpart of the Old Testament sacrifice. And the quality of that sacrifice was its excellence. God is known as the Lord of glory. And I told you last night that the word glory has the idea of a manifestation of excellence. People sometimes question, well, if you pursue excellence, won't you become proud? Not if you understand excellence, you won't. It's like the little boy who in Sunday school sang Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Now, how I wonder what you are. Then he went to high school and he studied one little chapter on astronomy in his science book. And he went out and he looked up at the sky and said, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, now I know what you are. Then he went to college. He got a PhD in astronomy. And then he went out and he said, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, I still wonder what you are. When people say that this person got education, he was proud, he got too much education. My answer to that is no, 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 no. He didn't get enough education. Educated people are humble. If you know a person who calls himself educated, who is proud, he is not educated. He needs way more education. He still does not know how much he does not know. I edit medical journals for a living. And there's a journal comes out on the retina of the eye, not just the eye, the retina of the eye, just that screen in the back of the eye, comes out every month, it's the size of a paperback book, that's the research that's done just on the retina of the eye. And they still don't understand completely everything about the retina of the eye. And I could go on and on and on. Excellence is pursued by people that have some understanding of how much more there is out there. They do not become proud. They are just in pursuit of excellence. (coughs) God is known as a God of excellence. That's what we're to manifest. We're to manifest the excellence of his character. And every leader has been committed to excellence, whether it's aesthetic excellence, whether it's worship excellence, whether you name it, whatever it is they're a leader in, they are inspired and they're pursuing excellence and and their pursuit of that and the, and the, the beautiful ideals they hold up and exemplify draws. It has a drawing effect on people. No one is drawn by something that's second rate. All right? Uh, <coughs> You know, I noticed moving among the German Baptists that the preaching among the German Baptists is of a pretty high quality. So I asked somebody one time, I said, well, how come the preaching in your churches is of such high quality? I mean, you just almost never hear a German Baptist sermon that is, that is less than excellent. I guess, uh, I don't go there all the time, but the ones I've heard have been excellent. And they said, well, somewhere in our history, some preachers established an ideal for what a message should be. And, and when we ordain somebody, they usually tend to rise toward that ideal. There was a standard set of excellence that people aspire to. Well, <clears throat> maybe you still have questions about excellence. Let, let me give you another example. Let's suppose you have a woman in your community who is extremely hospitable. Every visitor that comes gets invited to that home and it's just a wonderful hospitable home. But she is just a horrible housekeeper. Her house is a, is a, is a disaster in every respect. What would you say? Would you would you say what some people say about music? Well, her heart is right. You would say, well, it's wonderful she's hospitable, but I think she could be a good housekeeper, too, if she wanted to be. That's what I'm saying. It's all right to say the heart is the most important thing, and it is the most important thing, but what makes us think that you can't have excellence and also a good heart? So excellence is a characteristic of a leader, it has a drawing effect, it causes people to aspire, it causes people to move in the direction of the ideals that have been presented. The, the second thing that is characteristic of good leaders, of people who lead, is wisdom. Wisdom. The Bible says, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. Well, our family memorized that chapter one time, and that word caught my attention. If it's the principal thing, then I really want to know what it is. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom, oh, and, and by the way, Stephen was a leader, and it says he was full of wisdom, the, uh, the uh, deacon. Well, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is what you would do you're one of the children of Issachar. What you would do if you saw the total perspective for that decision so that you had what you did took into account all the facts that will be discovered afterward, all the experience that will happen after what you did accounted for all the facts and all the information. And it's something you can live with. It's, It's related to that idea of eternal life. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is to be able to do the right thing. That is really the right thing and you never regret it. It's not like we built our house, we put a porch on it, and I said, I want a porch swing, so we put lag bolts up through the, the uh, timber uh, of the ceiling, and we hung our swing, only to discover that when we put the railing around the porch, that the swing hits the railing and knocks the railing out. Well, I, if I would had wisdom in putting that swing there, that wouldn't have happened. But see, I'm saying, oh, you, you don't do that with wisdom. Wisdom does the thing that never needs to be revised. It takes in all the facts. All right? Now, we have a sister church. It's the Brethren in Christ Church. They used to be excellent singers. We had a Brethren in Christ Church near our our home. We often went to their services and often went just because we enjoyed the singing. They were actually better singers than the Mennonites in our community when I was growing up. But if you go to a Brethren in Christ Church today, almost all of them would be singing in unison. The four-part music is gone. Why? Why? In fact, this is so much so, I have a cousin who is a singer. He goes around singing solos, and his wife accompanies him. He came to my son Jeffrey's funeral, and his wife said he sat and cried through the singing. She said not because he, he was sad that my son had died, but he, she said he sat crying because the music moved himself. And after the funeral, he asked me for a CD, and I understood that he takes it to his friends in the Brethren of Christ Church and plays this and says, this is what music is supposed to be. Well, that's nice to say now that they've lost it. They'll probably never get it back unless they have a leader. How did they lose it? Uh, Some people have asked me to give a comment as to what happened to my son. Uh, So I'll just make a little interlude here. We had a son, Jeffrey. Uh, When he was 18, he had an automobile accident and was killed in that accident. Jeffrey was the musician of the family. In my hymnal, you'll find two pieces of music he wrote. There would have have been a lot more if we'd have known what was going to happen, but none of them were copied down in their permanently lost, but that's what happened to Jeffrey. But anyway, so what happened to the Brethren in Christ Church? They introduced an organ and a piano. Can I prove from the Bible that organs and pianos are sinful? No. I can prove from history. I can prove from looking at what happens when you introduce an instrument and tell you that You'll have to choose. You can either have your instrumental music or you can have your good four-part singing. There's only one group in history that I know had both, and that was the Moravians. but they put a lot of effort into making sure they maintained those two together. But ordinarily, when you put an instrument into the church, Alice Parker says this, and Alice Parker did the arrangements for Robert Shaw Corral, so she should know what she's saying. She said, when you introduce an instrument into the church, the responsibility for the sound is divided between the instrument and the singer's and the singers lose, and the instrument always wins. Now that's Alice Parker saying that, not me. That's not a scriptural argument, that's just a practical argument. But people who are wise say, this is what we want, and this is what we're gonna have to do, and that people can live with that decision forever, and nobody ever regrets it. My cousin is saying, oh, we lost it. That's too late. A leader knows what Israel ought to do and he stands there in the gap and people bless him for generations to come for qualities that never would have been preserved if it wouldn't have been for his wisdom. I hope I'm making sense. How many understood what I just said? So where you have something of value, where you have something like The singing that we have is because there were some people who understood some things that maybe other people didn't, and they stood there in the gap and they insisted on those things. Too many people let the world press them into its mold, but it doesn't have to be so. You should lead the new song with excellence, and you should lead the new song with wisdom. You also should lead the new song with enthusiasm. That's the third quality that a good leader has. He has uh, excellence. He's aspiring toward a goal that's beautiful and draws people. He has wisdom. The things he decides are things people can live with forever. They have the mark of eternity on them. He also has enthusiasm. It might be interesting for you to know that when it says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That word sacrifice is the word Greek word, the word from which we get enthusiasm. In fact, the the word enthusiasm is the word entheos, with God. Theos is God. It's the French word entheos. If you look in your dictionary, you'll see that's where the word enthusiasm came from. Well, it's hard for me to believe that people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, which is a supernatural power, would not have some zip about them. I mean, I don't believe in passionless Christianity. I'll just tell you that right now. Somebody who doesn't have a passion for, for, for his beliefs aren't providing much, they're not providing much evidence that that belief is real to them. So enthusiasm, it's another way of saying being filled with the Spirit. A leader is filled with the Spirit of God and he has enthusiasm and it's contagious. The Jews had understood that The reason Paul said concerning zeal, here's my proof that I had zeal, uh, I persecuted the church. The reason he said that is because the Jews had figured out a long time ago that the man whose heart was in his religion, the man who was a true Jew, not only believed certain things, but he had a passion behind his beliefs. And if you go through the New Testament, the Old Testament, you'll find these people that had this zeal. That's a quality of a leader. Everyone is passionate about something, and if you're passionate about the new song, you will, be, you, will, you will lead your community in singing. And the final point, steadfastness. Okay. So we have aspirations toward excellence that has a magnetic drawing power. We have wisdom, which gives us something that we can live with forever. We have enthusiasm that is, that is the very essence of God expressing himself through us And then steadfastness. The Bible talks about steadfastness frequently. Not everyone is going to... A leader soon finds out that not everybody will embrace his vision. (laughs) Uh, You know, I started out as a young uh, idealistic person and I was so excited about the things that were happening in my life spiritually that I thought if I got up and taught them, everybody would just be so excited about them. And then I found out that some people didn't agree with me. That was very disappointing. But every leader faces that every leader faces that because he's charting a course he's staying the course people don't agree sometimes but he's staying the course he has a vision they don't see he has wisdom and not everyone's gonna agree so what do you do well you learned like Vance Havner said to toughen your hide without hardening your heart and you don't quit Good leaders don't quit. They are not discouraged. They don't abandon their vision. They don't become nasty. They don't become obnoxious. They become sweeter and sweeter the more people oppose them. (laughs) And if they can do that, if they can stay the course and still have a friendly, Christ like, beautiful, winsome spirit, there'll be enough people join them that over a period of time, things will shift. I'll give you an example. When I came to Anchor Christian School at Chippensburg, that was the church school uh, for the church where we were going, the teacher before me said, you're going to have an interesting experience teaching in this school. This is a non-singing community. And I sang. the teacher before me said, I sang a solo in devotions last year. The students will not sing. I didn't believe her. I didn't believe there was anywhere that people would not sing but it was true, I stood up the first morning and nobody sang but me. There were 18 boys in that class, one of them could sing, the others couldn't carry a tune, and they had him intimidated, so he wouldn't sing, all right? And the girls, of course, if the boys don't sing, then it's not the right thing to do, so the girls didn't sing either. Not only that, but they were singing out of a cheap hymnal that I did not appreciate, and thankfully it was worn out so the school board at the first meeting said we need to get new hymnals I said I'll save you money you don't need to buy any hymnals because I had rummaged through the closets to find out what books were there for the coming year and I found in the back of one of the closets 75 church hymnals like you have when they took the hymn, that hymnal out of the church and put the other one in somebody sent the thing to a bindery and it had a library binding and if you have a library binding in the book it means the paper will wear out before the binding does so these books were eternal. <laughs> anyway, so I said, "You don't. I'll save you money. We have hymnals. And so we passed out the church hymnals and we started to teach music. <clears throat> and uh, I told the boys, you will learn to sing. You will either learn to sing in music class or during phys ed, you can decide which. <laughs> Some of them needed a lot of one-to-one help, but you know those boys all learned to sing? Every student in that school learned to sing, and some of those boys have come back to say, oh, I need to tell you this. There were three boys in the school from a very respectable family, and their father came in the door one evening after school very apologetically. He wanted to talk to me. Uh, He said, now look, he said, I appreciate what you're doing, and he said, I don't want to discourage you, but you're wasting your time teaching my boys to sing because we are a non-singing family. You are wasting your time. I hate to see you waste your time. He was being very nice. Well, those three boys learned not only to carry a tune, they also learned to sing a part. The last year I taught in that school, the last of the three boys sat beside me in devotions and sang a wonderful bass. And those three boys have all come back to thank me for giving them what was the most precious gift anybody had ever given them. Now, we had the church hymnal, which wasn't the light songs they were singing, and they hated that book. They called music class, music class. But at the end of seven years of teaching in that school, if you'd have taken a vote among the students who went through that school as to what, book they want, what song book they would have wanted in their church, I think they'd have voted almost unanimously for the church hymnal. What I'm trying to say to you is you have to persist. Steadfastness is a quality of a leader. He is not deterred by people who don't see his vision, who does, don't understand what he's doing. He knows his vision is good. He has the confirmation of history on it. He has the confirmation of other good-thinking people. He knows he has a good decision. He sweetly and kindly but persistently with steadfastness and unflappability pursues his vision. And you need a person like that for music in every community who understands what good music is, understands how to produce it, and just will not quit like Henry Good, like my grandmother, like John Overholt, like other people. I suspect there was somebody like that here in this community in the past, or maybe several of them. So I told you that at twelve o'clock we'd end, and it's twelve o'clock. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the men down through history, who were men committed to excellence, who were men who were committed to wisdom, who were men who were committed, who were enthusiastic and steadfast. Oh God, raise up such people in our community, our communities, for our music, for our worship in song. Raise up people also who have those qualities in the other areas of our church that, that need to, uh, have that kind of leadership to progress. Oh God, help us as, a, as a, as a Mennonite people not to succumb to the cheap and secondary pursuits of the so-called Christians around us. But oh God, may we lift up a standard that attracts many people to the beauty of holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.